0: We welcome you to the Media Ministry of Denton Bible Church. Our speaker today is the Senior Pastor, Tom Nelson. Well, let me show you something here. From Third John, turn to First John, and we'll briefly peruse that. Then Second John peruse that, as it leads to Third John. They're a unit: First, Second, and Third John. Let me begin with this. Um, 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John are written in 90 AD. Paul has been dead for 20 years. The church with its Jerusalem beginnings has been squashed by Rome. The church now is predominantly Gentile. Um, The challenge to the church is now not so much idolatry, but it is philosophy By going into yourself as the Greeks and the Romans did and finding truth within yourself. And what was happening is there was a particular belief called Gnosticism. Don't worry about it, but it was a Platonic um, philosophy. And Christianity had, a lot of Christians had syncretized with it and kind of baptized Gnosticism in Christianity. Gnosticism taught that the physical world was evil in in and of itself. It was created by a lesser angelic being called the Demiurge. Don't worry about it. And uh, that to bring us to a higher knowledge of the spiritual, this angel named Christ came and fell upon a man named Jesus and enlightened him and he was, Jesus was not God, and he was not, this Christos fellow was not even a a creation. He was not even man. He just looked, he had the appearance of, it's called docetism, to the appearance. He just appeared to be a man, but before he died, because spirits can't die, the spirit of Christos left him, and he died. And so they would say he came by water at baptism, but not by blood. John's going to talk about this as the one who came by water and by blood. Okay, and so, and Gnostics believed that spiritual life was not a physical restraint from the flesh, that it didn't matter what your flesh did because it was cursed, it was going to die. If you wanted to be immoral, if you wanted to be a glutton, a drunk, a druggie, anything you wanted to do, it didn't matter. God didn't care. He was more concerned about higher knowledge or gnosis, G-N-O-S-I-S. And so that was Gnosticism. They denied the deity of Christ, the humanity of Christ, the sufficiency of his death. They denied Christian morality, and they rejected fundamental apostolic Christianity as being false. And so John in 1 John answers Gnosticism. The key word is the word identified. He identifies it, and he polarizes it. And John's going to use the term, by this we know, by this we know. He's going to say it all through John. This is what the real Christian is, that he holds to the true humanity of Christ, the deity of Christ. He holds to his uh, death and bodily resurrection. He holds to uh, the regeneration and of a moral life of Christians that love fellow Christians. By this we know, by this we know, by this we know. And so that's 1 John. He polarizes it and identifies it. Let me ask you, in the world that we're in, is there a need out there for this? to polarize. This is false, this is biblical, and it is true. Okay, In our world today, back a hundred years ago, it was thought to be intelligent if you knew what truth was. Now you're an idiot if you claim to know what truth is. True intelligence is not knowing what the heck's going on. And so John identifies it. This is wrong. This is right. In 2 John... The truth is not now, or the error is not now, just identified. But in Second John, it's spreading. If you'll look at Second uh, John, in verse uh, verse seven, many deceivers have gone out into the world. These are missionaries of Gnosticism. They're carrying this message outward. He says, "Those who do not acknowledge Jesus Christ is coming in the flesh." That was Gnosticism. He just appeared to be a man, but a spirit came upon him and left him. And this is the deceiver and the Antichrist. He, John just polarizes it. This is of the devil. And verse 8, watch yourselves, that you don't lose what we have accomplished, but you may receive a full reward. Like my man, Kendall Lucas, I took him when he was a mere knave, knew nothing. Okay shaped him into the holy man that he is. Suppose that all of a sudden I see Kendall wander and go off into crazy ideas. I would say, Kendall, watch yourself. I don't want to lose what this church has accomplished building into your life and your wife and your daughters. I want you to receive a full reward. Question, can Christians get sucked in to doctrinal error? Yes, they can. That's how you have cults, okay? and so he says in verse 9 here's the way you know the guy anyone who goes too far and doesn't abide in the teaching of christ he doesn't have god anytime an error comes to you with a different epistemological base epistemology is the art of knowing when anyone comes to you and says you don't know truth through the word of god you're going to know it through philosophy the one-time philosophy is used in the New Testament's in Colossians. Let no one take you captive through philosophy and empty deception. Uh, if ever you have a guy bike up to your door with a black tie on, okay, a Mormon, I've had them come up. They don't come anymore, but they came up to my door, and they would want to talk, and we talked to you about this stuff, and I would say, sure, but here's the rule: you can't talk about anything but the Bible. That's my assumption, that God has spoken sufficiently and completely in the Bible. Your belief begins with the insufficiency of the Bible. So you got book 67 by a guy from New York that came out of the woods seeing an angel called Moroni, Moron Eye. Yeah, that's a bad name for an angel. And so they say, we ain't got nothing to say because our, our belief is on the assumption that the Bible is not true and sufficient. And I say, well, we have nothing to say. I've got a lot to say though about what the Bible says about what you say. So John says, if he goes too far, he comes up with book 67. He comes up with the Uh, The New World Translation, which is the Bible that Jehovah's Witnesses use, or the writings of Mary Baker Eddy, which is what Christian Science uses, or Elizabeth White, which is what Seventh-day Adventists use. They are uh, the World Tomorrow of what uh, Garner Ted Armstrong uses, his Anglo-Israelism. Every cult begins with the assumption, the Bible's not true and sufficient, but my guy is. And so John says, you nix him at that point. Uh, some guy that is a, whenever you study philosophy, it's not just one book. There are a row of books because you have an epistemological problem with how do you know it's true? Because Socrates says it's true. Who was Socrates? Well, Aristotle, or Plato says this, who is he? Well, Aristotle added to him. And then the Neoplatonists added to them. And then this guy added to them. And so each generation cancels out the original because it, doesn't, it isn't sufficient enough to give you a moral base and a, an epistemological base. The Bible, the Word of God, is epistemologically sound, it is morally sound, it is salvifically sound, it is historically sound, it is morally, it is uh, as far as prophecy, as showing you what we came from, what we are, where we're going. The Bible is sufficient. I don't need book 67. And that's why the last apostle, the men that were entrusted with the New Testament truth, were the apostles. Jesus said the Holy Spirit will guide you, you 12, into all the truth. I'm going to give you the keys of the kingdom. If you say no, it's no. You bind it. If you say yes, it's yes. You're going to spiritually, you're an eyewitness, and you know what the truth is. And so that's why the church is an apostolic organization built upon eyewitnesses. Uh, I forgot what I was talking about. All right. And so in verse 10, if anyone comes to you and doesn't bring this teaching of verse nine of the father and the son, don't receive him into your house. Now the house it's talking about is probably a house church. Don't let this guy in. And so if Someone, do y'all remember the old days at the airports when the Hare Krishnas were there? The good old days. All right. And they would come up and they would want a contribution. And I would always go, no, no. You don't just have a dollar. I said, I got all kinds of dollars. But they're not for you because you're a child of hell. Now let me explain. Because you negate the word of God and you add to it what this guy from over in the east says. And that's no good. The, the truth of God is given by the Jew that is finished by the eyewitnesses of Christ that talk about what he said, that completes the Old Testament and goes on in the New and brings a complete word of God. So no, I'm not going to give you a nickel and contribute to your error. And that's what John says. If a guy comes to our church and he says, I am a missionary from CAM International, uh, Central American Missions, and I'm out there doing that and I work for them, we're going to take care of that guy while he's here, look after him, make sure his needs are met. But if we get a guy from the, you know, glory barn, tabernacle, uh, church of the culvert down by the over, whatever overpass, we're not going to give him a dime because I don't know who he is. Amen. We're not going to contribute to what he's doing. Because John says in verse 11, the one who gives him a greeting participates in his evil deeds. And so, 1 John identifies error. Second John says, beware. Verse 8, beware. It's spreading. It's going out in missional style. Third John, it's now not just identified and it's not just warned about. And third, John, you see the first commandeering of a Christian church by the bad guys. As we all go about in our lives, uh, all of us have seen this happen. That's why these books are prophetic about what's coming. 90 AD, just before John dies with the book of Revelation and signs off. The last words of the book of Revelation, don't you add to this and don't you take away from it. It's a bow. It's sealed. It's done. It's finished. And so, Jesus said, it is inevitable that stumbling blocks will come, but woe to him for whom they come. Jesus talked about the church age being the time of the wheat and the, not chef, Steve, I know what you were thinking, tares. That's what you were going to say that, University of Texas, the wheat and the tares. A tear looks like wheat until... It flourishes and it produces a poison, but it looks just like wheat. Jesus talked about there's gonna be people in your church that can sit right next to you, that can be wheat and that can be tares, false believers. Uh, Paul said they hold to a form of godliness and deny its real power. Peter, just as there arose false prophets among the Jewish people, there will be false teachers among you. And now John, Jesus, Peter, Paul, John. Watch these guys. They're out there. All of us have seen historic churches, historic denominations, historic colleges, SMU, TCU, ACU, Wake Forest, Duke, Harvard, that were Christian colleges. As a matter of fact, of the Ivy League colleges, only one Cornell was not started by Christians to train Christian ministers. All right, and we have seen uh, seminaries fall. Uh, Dallas Seminary was begun in 1924 because in 1929 Princeton, the place that produces the Christian leaders of America, uh, canceled inerrancy, denied it uh, in their board, and so Dallas was begun. And so all of these erroneous groups throughout the history of Christianity, and there's no place that you can go that you will not find. uh, Seminaries, denominations, colleges, churches succumb to this. They all come from the same source. And that is that they are churches trying to relate to modern minds. Bruce Shelley, in his book on church history, had a whole chapter on liberalism. And the title of the chapter was... Uh, a bridge to modern uh, intellects, a bridge to modern man, because that's where liberalism comes. You guys don't believe in the self evidence of God and the creation. Y'all don't believe in the Bible. Y'all don't believe in the supernatural. Y'all are modern men. And so we're going to have to change Christianity to get people in our church to run the organization. So we're going to get rid of biblical inerrancy the deity of Christ, we're going to make him a good man. Y'all ever heard of the social gospel? The social gospel was coined because of the embarrassment of saying that men were going to hell and needed to be born again and go to heaven. That was embarrassing to the, 18, the 1800s and 19th century. So they said that conversion was not really conversion, that it was doing social good and feeding the poor. That was the gospel because that was more palatable to modern man. And on and on. And now in our day, you're seeing even among what were called evangelical churches, the dropping of the moral requirements. The Bible gives theological statements and it makes moral statements and statements about culture, about the home, men, women, children. And so you will have now churches that are pressured by abortion, by no fault divorce, walking away from your mate, by pornography and open fornication by homosexuality by transgender uh now we have in the school furries kids that think they're animals all right yeah did i tell you last week about the bible study i did and a woman said i got a girl in my study uh, in my class that's a cat and she grooms herself and then a guy next to her said well i got a raccoon in mine and so you now got kids that are not sure if they're they're humans or animals And has the church stood and said, thus saith the Lord? No. To try to get people in, we have compromised on these things to try to get along with everybody. And so you start to see this kudzu. Y'all know what kudzu is? It's that plant that grows over everything. It spreads within minutes, and it'll kill everything under it. And that's kind of what liberal theology and humanism and secularism is. It spreads well because it's no moral challenge to man. It lets you do whatever you want to do. And so it spreads easily and it kills what's under it. And so in Third John, we're going to see a church that is commandeered by a bad guy. It's prophetic of what is coming. With that bit of encouragement, take a look at Third John. And you see in verse 1, it's written by John, the elder. He calls himself an elder, the same as Peter in 1 Peter 5 calls himself an elder. The idea of an apostle, apostello, to be sent forth. These are old guys, and they don't travel as much. And so they have now localized in particular churches. And so this is a guy, and it's very key that he's speaking to a local church, because that's where you have to meet the enemy. It's in the local church. And so, the elder, and then this guy Gaius is a Gentile name. He's a Gentile leader, which is really key because by 90 AD, Israel has been, Jerusalem's been destroyed. The church is predominantly Gentile. And for the last 20 centuries, it has become a predominantly non-Jewish organization with just a remnant of Jews here and there. And as idolatry went out among Israel, philosophy and, quote, modern science has gone out among the Gentiles. They're our idols. And so he's writing to a Gentile leader of the next generation of Christianity. In a sense, he's writing to you and to me. We're not apostles. Uh, We have not seen apostles. Well, the church that's going to come forth from Gaius is just like Denton Bible. They have not seen, a lot of them, apostles. They have a guy named Gaius that is informed by an apostle. And so that's the way the normative church becomes. And in verse 1, he says, I love you in truth that we have a bond, you and I, Gaius, that is not just because we are males or because we are Romans, which I'm not sure if John was, Paul was a Roman, but he says our bond is truth. When I became a Christian... I began going to Campus Crusade for Christ that was full of non-athletes. They were skinny, uh, well-bathed people, okay, unlike my friends, okay. And yet I had a bond with these people, these psychology majors and these dance majors and musicians that I didn't have with my my, uh, old athletic buddies, that weren't Christians because the bond of truth wasn't there. And so he says, Gaius, we have something that bonds us together, and it is the truth. It's not a speculation, it's something God has spoken to us in the person of his son and in the pen and ink that describe him. And now, the coin of the realm, you don't have to be mystic, you have to be disciplined seeking to acquire it. It's now on the table for everyone. And so we have a bond as Christians that is in truth. And in verse two, here's how John knows that uh, he is a leader. He said, I pray that in all respects you may prosper financially and be in good health physically as your soul prospers. How many of you would be willing to make a deal with God that I want my finances and my health to be as good as my spiritual life. Would that make you nervous? Normally that's the way you pick a leader. Is he wealthy and is he physically impressive? John says, no. What's impressive about you, in verse two, is your soul, your spirit. And I hope that your finances and your blood pressure and cholesterol do as good as your spirit. So you might be saying to me, Tom, that's a revolutionary way to look at church leadership. Amen. Something has changed. That's what a leader is. He is, he grows in, uh, what did say? Uh, in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and men. And in verse 3, here is how John knows he's spiritual. He received missionaries. I was very glad when brethren came. Those are missionaries that came through Gaius's church. And they testified to your truth. That is how you're walking in truth. And here's what he did. In verse 4, he says, I have no greater joy than to hear of my children walking in the truth. The greatest delight that a teacher has is to know that when he dies, people will go on carrying out the message, walking in truth. And the truth that he speaks of is in verse five. That is truth. You're acting faithfully and whatever you accomplish for the brethren, especially when they are strangers. Brethren that come through your church that you don't know are traveling missionaries in the first century. And he says, you're acting faithfully and that you have taken care of these people. That the church is not just an individual's relationship with God. It's an entire church. And it's not just an entire church. It's the entire invisible church. We are related. Whenever a Korean brother comes through Denton and he lets us know that he's a Christian and he's on his way somewhere else, we're going to take care of that guy. You know why? He's a he's family. He's family. And so we're going to look after him. If a woman comes through through Sudan interior missions and he, she's heading to, down in the middle of Africa and she comes through, we're going to be attentive to her needs, even though she's a stranger because she's a a Christian sister. And so Christianity is going from the individual to the local church to the universal body of Christ, that we love each other in truth. Well, let me show you something here. Go to your left to the book of Titus, which is Paul's next to last book just before he dies. And in the book of Titus, it's a pastoral epistle. It's to the next generation. And he says in chapter 3, In verse 12, uh, or rather verse 13, diligently help Zenos, the lawyer, and Apollos on their way that nothing is lacking for them. Who are these guys that are coming through Crete, where Titus was, and heading off to other places? They're traveling missionaries. They're evangelists going out to share the gospel. Today, they would be, like whenever we, uh, at the beginning of our service, Charles talks about our missionaries or we will have guys on our, in our church from campus crusade, from inner varsity, from navigators, from different organizations. And we look after them. We're, we're sensitive to those people because they're part of the family. And so Paul says this lawyer, that's a Jewish guy. There was an expert in old Testament law. And then Apollos, he was a Greek that knew his philosophy and knew Christianity. He says make sure nothing is lacking for them take care of these brothers and in verse 14 our people christians must learn to engage in good deeds and meet pressing needs i.e a missionary would you all agree with that it's bigger than just us it's an entire world at stake god so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son Let's show you something else here. Go back to your, or a little farther to your right, to the book of Hebrews in chapter 13. And at the very end of Hebrews, he talks to you about moral conduct. And to these Jewish Christians throughout the uh, Roman Empire, he says in verse 1, let the love of the brethren continue. It's bigger than just you in your local church. Love the brethren and in verse 2, here's the brethren. Don't neglect to show hospitality to strangers, knowing that, by some, that for this some have entertained angels without knowing it. The strangers and New Testament vocabulary is talking about a missionary. Let the love of the brethren continue. When strangers come, even though they're not part of your church, even though you don't know where they're from, that they are brothers. They're people of the truth. They're not Gnostics. They're not Ebionites, which was an earlier Jewish cult. These are real believers. I want you not to neglect to show hospitality to these people because some have entertained angels. Do y'all remember in the book of Genesis, Abraham is getting ready to eat and three men show up. He addresses the one that is the spokesman as the Lord. It is the pre-incarnate appearance of the Son of God called the angel of the Lord. And he's got two buddies with him that are just regular first-class lieutenant angels. Okay, And these three show up. And Abraham looks at them, recognizes something that is good about them, and he says to Sarah, set another three places. Don't you women love that when your husband comes in and says, incidentally, I found out that's the word my wife hates most of all. Incidentally, I'm bringing three people to supper. Set the table. And she does. Well, who those people were, they were divine messengers, which is what the term angel means. And thus, Hebrews says to these Jews who knew their Old Testament, some, like Abraham, have entertained these divine messengers without knowing it. You might just look at this person and say, you know, that looks like a regular old guy, but he's not. This is a missionary. You are entertaining an angel, a messenger of God, unaware of who they are. And so, reach out to missionaries So, 1 John, Paul, Hebrews, 3 John. Go back to it here. And in verse 5, especially when they are strangers, they're missionaries. Verse 6, this was their boast of Gaius. They have testified to your love before the church, and you'll do well to send them on their way in a manner worthy of God. They came back to John's, the church that he was at, and they said, man, John, do you know Gaius? Yeah, you know that church he's in? Yeah, we showed up there and they took care of us. And what's more, in verse six, send them on their way. When we left, uh, we left with our lunch boxes full. We left with foot powder and whatever with mosquito spray, and they took care of us when we came and when we left because, verse 6, they are worthy of God. Let me stop just a minute. Are y'all seeing right here that by 90 AD, the idea of the church is mushrooming from an individual In the New Testament, it's always Christ and individuals, Paul and individuals. Then all of a sudden in the book of Acts, it gets bigger. And now by 90 AD, by the end of Paul's writings and by the end of John's writings, it's becoming a worldwide institution. And so you take care of these missionaries. And in verse 7, here's why. They went out for the sake of the name. The name in the Old Testament and the New Testament, is talking about the name of God. You will not take his name in vain. Christianity is not simply a belief in a deity. It is a belief in the revealed God of the Old Testament to Israel, the Lord, Yahweh. You will do well. They went out for the sake of the name, accepting nothing from the Gentiles, which means they didn't charge like philosophic teachers would do. They would go out and speak. They would get a group around them and they would charge them. Incidentally, that's where the idea of a university came from. Primarily from Spain down through Europe where you would have traveling philosophic teachers that would get students and the students would pay them and they would meet in barns. They would meet under trees. Then after a while, they drew up rules for the teachers. You always had to show up. You had to be on time. You could never not complete a teaching. And that became the universal education of Europe that were called the universities. So these are uh, your guys going out that don't do like university profs. We're not going to charge you. Did Christ have something to say about this? Freely you have received, freely give. We don't charge because the gospel is free. But who does support them? In verse 8, we. We ought to support such men. They shouldn't look to the pagan to take care of them. We'll take care of them. It's called missions support. Let me tell you something that I'm, I don't want to boast, but I'm going to boast. Our church gives a certain percent outside our church that is not refunded. We give 40% of our money outside. That's about $4.5 million dollars to missions we scatter it and throw it on the ground and let it go to seed and that's what you always want to be doing living by faith so that we may be fellow workers with the truth these guys speak and we guys give and we're all part of this second john you help a cult member you're part of his lie. third john you help a believer you're part of his ministry isn't that good i hope you all have people on your refrigerators that's where you put pictures of missionaries, the Hall of Fame, okay? And so in verse 9, he continues. Now, if he had quit this epistle right there in verse 8, it would have been a very optimistic epistle. But he says in verse 9, I wrote something to the church, but there's a guy out there that has commandeered the pulpit. His name is Diotrephes, another Greek name. And he loves to be first among them. That's a word normally used for Jesus Christ, the word preeminence. This guy wants to be in total control. And he is unaccountable. He doesn't accept what we say. He will not listen to authority over him. And in verse 10, if I come, I'll call attention to his deeds, which he does unjustly accusing us, apostles, with wicked words. He rejects apostolic authority, the authority of the Word of God. And he even slanders them in verse 10, accusing us. He tries to change the message. He tries to change what God gave. The beginnings of liberal theology were in the 19th century, late 1700s. And the difference was, up until then, The challenges among ideology was among people that all agreed that God had given his word. Their difference was on what the word was interpreted as being by. Catholics, Lutherans, uh, reform guys, Calvinists, Puritans, Anglicans, they would differ over what the inerrant Bible said. But by the mid 1800s, the challenge now, it came out of Germany was a challenge to the nature of the Bible, not what the Bible said, but as to whether this document was even true or whether it was false. And it spread like kudzu. Well, this guy, in a sense, is your first liberal. He denies the authority of the apostles and he slanders what it is they're saying. And in verse 10, not satisfied was this, neither does he receive the brethren, the missionaries that come, This guy individually rejects the apostles. This guy in the church will put you out of the church if you disagree with him. And then as the church spreads, he will not support mission work. He is dead in the heart and the relationships and in his ministry. And in verse 10, he forbids those who desire to do so. That in the church, if you had people rally to the side of Gaius and John, this guy would move you out of the church. So that's why we say that 1 John identifies the error. Second John warns against its spread. And 3 John, evil has now commandeered the Christian church. This is the beginning of the tares. And he puts them out of the church. He will do reverse excommunication on these people. I remember when I was a young believer, I went to a church here in Denton. I won't tell you which one it was, okay? And I was giving my testimony. And I took a girl with me, Teresa, that became my wife to behold the power and the prowess of myself, okay? And so I went and shared the gospel with the college department, which was like seven people. All right. And I got to sharing about Christ. And all of a sudden, this girl raised her hand. And she said, wait a minute. Yes? You're assuming something. And I said, what's that? That we believe the Bible. And I just looked at him. I'd never seen one of these creatures. All right. I said, yeah, we're, we're Christians. Christ who is told about in the Bible, the word of God, that he quoted, you know, 1,900 times. Yeah, I'm assuming that. Why? Are you not? We don't believe the Bible. And I looked around at this group, and it was like seeing a UFO. I didn't know these people existed. And especially because I grew up, rather, I couldn't believe that they were there, all right? And I said, why do you think that on this church, at the top of it is a steeple with a cross? Because we honor the word of God that tells about Christ. I went outside the church later. I couldn't find a cross nowhere. All right. But I was just assuming. And about this time, I feel this girl I brought, Teresa, patting my leg. Slow down. Slow down. Because I was going to take this girl outside. All right. And I went around the room right there. I didn't have the gentility that I do now, all right? And I just pointed at each one of them. I said, do you believe the Bible's true? No. Do you? And this little lizard, he said to me, no, I think we put too much emphasis on Jesus. Yeah, Christians a lot of times do. And we went on around, and this one guy in there, he said, yeah, I believe the Bible. And I said to him, what are you doing here? But that was my first contact with these guys. And now they are, they are, give me a word. They're everywhere. Kudzu. All right. And so this guy will kick you out of the church if you don't agree with him. Wow. If I, just to give you a a list of what this guy does real quick. He longs for power. He's unaccountable. He rejects the apostles' message. He slanders their message. He divides the church. He refuses missionaries, and he will kick you out of their church if you hold to the Bible. That's what that girl wanted to do, was to ostracize the Christian and to kick him out so that evil could commandeer the church. And this has happened SMU, TCU, ACU, Wake Forest, Duke, uh, Harvard, Yale, Princeton. Whenever you're talking about a belief, Christianity, that says you're ignorant and need the Bible, you're dead and need a Savior, you are unable to obey God, you need a rebirth. You have followed lies. You need truth. That belief system flies in the face of self-confidence. And so it doesn't spread far unless God is going to push it. The idea that nothing is over me that I as a human being are from nature. I have no accountability whatsoever. Morality is what I feel good after. Immorality is what I feel bad after. I can assign my gender, my morality, my sexuality. I am now God. That belief does quite well until it gets on in life and then you commit suicide because it won't work. And so Christianity has always been against the flow. And so he continues on here in verse 13 and he speaks to, I'm sorry, verse 12, and he corrects the message. He compliments Gaius, he challenges Gaius, and now he's going to redirect Gaius. He says, Demetrius has received a good testimony from everyone, meaning that he's a spiritual man. People love him. And from the truth itself, he's apostolic, orthodox. And we add our testimony. The previous leadership has said, this guy supports the Great Commission. And he loves Christian. And he loves missionaries. And you know that our testimony is true. When he says in verse 11, don't imitate what is evil. Who's he talking about? Starts with a D. Sounds like iatrophies. Don't imitate this guy. Don't tolerate him. Fire him. This is John pulling rank. Whatever you bind shall have been bound in heaven. Whatever you loose shall have been loosed in heaven. John's pulling rank. Paul does it to the Corinthians. What do you desire? Shall I come to you with gentleness or with a rod and a spirit of gentleness? I'm going to pull rank. And so don't imitate what is evil. This guy's got to go but what is good? Verse 12, this guy has got to be there because in verse 11, the one who is good is of God. The one who does evil has no clue who God is. Don't be listening to him. And so in verse 12, he is orthodox, he is moral, and he is ministerially sound. In verse 13, I had many things to write to you, but I'm not willing to write them in pen and ink, but I hope to see you shortly and we'll speak face to face. You know why that verse is there? He's saying, I'm telling you right now as the head of the organization, the guys under Christ, you get rid of this guy. And then you put Demetrius in his place. And then he says, incidentally, I'm coming. And we're going to talk face to face. So get ready. In verse 15, he says, you're not alone. Peace be to you. The friends greet you. Greet the friends by name. Have y'all ever heard of a denomination in our country called the friends? Who are they? Quakers. The friends. That comes from a term Jesus used in John. No longer do I call you slaves, but I call you friends. For you don't tell your slave what you're doing, but I've told you all things that I'm doing. You're my friends if you do what I say. And so the friends he's talking about here, all the friends greet you. It's not just... Gaius, and it's not just his church, and it's not just John, but the whole body of Christ that runs with God there for you. If you've probably guessed listening to me preach any amount of time, you know what I read in my spare time. It's church history. You know why I read it? Because I'm reading about the friends, the guys that are part of the great institution of the church going all the way back to the first century. And you look at the friends how we have done it so he says in 15 gaius you're part of something that is a lot bigger than you well let me give you just real quickly this was the list evil wants control number one number two evil needs a man a Diatrophes. number three a man motivated by pride that the church is his means of satisfying his flesh. Generally in a cult, you'll find that somebody is getting rich and somebody's having sex with somebody they shouldn't be having sex with. I think Joseph Smith had like 24 wives. He didn't want other women. He wanted your wife. Did y'all know that? He wasn't just a polygamist. He wanted your wife. Same as David Koresh. He wanted your wife. Same as Jim Jones. He wanted your wife. And whenever... Joseph Smith died. A new guy came in and said, We got to get out of here. Let's go to Utah. His name was Brigham Young. He got his name because he said, I'm going to get y'all some wives. What do you want? They said, Brigham Young. (laughs) That's not true. I just thought I thought that (laughs) in there. It's a man that rejects apostolic authority, a man who rejects the faithful. Like that girl, she didn't want me in that church. He rejects missions, the Great Commission. Uh, He will slander and lie about those that oppose him. And he will split the body of Christ in his takeover. And John says, Gaius, they're to be rejected. Don't you sit and let this guy take your kids and your generation and your culture. Don't you sit there. And then lastly, judgment's coming. I'm going to come and fix this thing. What's the last words of the New Testament? Behold, I come. Come soon, Lord Jesus. Well, I want to show you something just real quick. And first Corinthians, go back to your left, 15. This is the Pauline version of third John. The Gnostics were in the Corinthian church. They were saying there was no bodily resurrection. God does not want a physical body of anybody in heaven, even if it's glorified. And morality is not to be followed in the church because nobody cares about your sex drive or your drunkenness. It's spiritual visions and super spiritual mystic relationships. And so he says in verse uh, 33 about false teachers, don't be deceived. Bad company corrupts good morals. Don't you think these guys are not going to affect your children and your culture and take it down? In verse 34, so be sober-minded. The word sober in Greek is a word that's, uh, its root word is the mind or the head. Uh, Sober means that you have your head screwed on. When you're drunk, you don't see things correctly. Screw your heads on. He says, stop sinning. Following through with this dualistic idea of Gnosticism where your sexual, social morality is meaningless. Quit doing that. For some have no knowledge of God. Who are the some he's speaking of? It's false teachers. They're leading you into sin. Some have no knowledge of God. And then he says in verse 34, I speak to your shame. He says, shame on you, Perkins Seminary you Methodist guys of the early 1900s that have forsaken the gospel. Shame on you, Harvard. Shame on you, Yale. Harvard now has an atheist chaplain. Shame on you, U.S. military, all branches that have acquiesced. Shame on you, educational institutions with Christian backgrounds that have folded on this. You are now... You know, AWOL in the fight. You took off running. Shame on you, you deserter. Paul says, I speak this to your shame. And that's why when I die, Steve Bowles was sitting right here this morning. He was our church mortician, okay? And I told Steve, I said, when I die, I said, I want you to bury me with my eyes open. And anybody that comes by that casket, I'm going to look at it. And I want you to put my finger up there. Bring my jaw out. And that's what I'm going to look at you. Are you still faithful? Because I'm telling you what, if I found out you leave this place and you go to some nickel, any penny, something, whatever, sorry, God-rejecting thing that calls it the church, I'm going to come back, and I'm going to find you. I really am. Just like Samuel to Saul, you know. You'll go through a drive through and you'll look up, and it's me. You go down the road, somebody weed-eating, it's me. I'm just gonna look at you. I got a friend who was in Dallas Seminary, and late at night one night he went to the Dallas Seminary Post Office. And as he well, he went down there and put his shoes on. He was gonna run downtown Dallas when it clears out. At least it did in the 70s. He's gonna go down and run. Down there in downtown Dallas, very safe place to run. At night, but he was gonna run there. His name was Rich Kozart. And as he was going down there, he saw a guy coming. And he had on a blue bathrobe, terry cloth bathrobe. And he was about five foot five. And he had a big Hoss Cartwright hat on from Bonanza, you know. And he was walking. He had on blue Nikes. And he's old. And he's just walking down there. And you took a look at him. And it was W.A. Criswell, <laughs> pastor of First Baptist Dallas. And he had gone, left his house in Swiss Avenue, came down to mail a letter late on a Saturday night. And here he was, he just saw him out for his constitutional in a bathrobe and a cowboy hat and sneakers on. Walking down there. And he just stopped him. He said, Dr. Chriswell, my name's Rich Cozart. And he said, I'm a young Christian. Chriswell always loved young preacher boys. He said, I'm over here at Dallas Seminary and I just, I just want to thank you for the stance that you've made on the gospel. Oh, son, God bless you. And he said, come with me, son. We'll take a walk together. And they walked, and he said, Is, we got to walk, and I got to ask him questions. And he said, Criswell doesn't have really an indoor, outdoor voice. you know. He's just always preaching. All right. Matter of fact, if you go to him with a McDonald's, he'll order and say, I'll have a hamburger, and I'll have pickles on that hamburger. And so he just walked around the block with him. And he said, Criswell was just preaching the whole way. you got to do this, and he's doing this, and you got to get these guys up. And so he stopped, and Criswell looked at him and said, "Haw, son, that was good. Let's go again. So they walked around there again. And when he got finished, he got ready to part with W.A. Criswell. And he said, Dr. Criswell, what would you tell a young man that's going into the ministry? And he took right there, and he said, I'll tell you what you tell him. You tell him that the Bible's true. And tell him that God's good. And tell him hell's hot and Jesus saves. Meaning, don't you depart from the truth, all right? Give yourself a hand right there. And so that's what our church is. We are Denton Bible Church. We're old school that God has spoken. He has spoken truly. He's revealed himself, inspired it. The Christians could recognize the canon of truth that speaks of the Trinity, the deity of Christ, the Holy Spirit that brings conversion, puts salvation in a man's heart of which he that began everything, will continue it in this age and return and fulfill his promises to Israel. That's the Bible. If you tried to invent the perfect belief system, that would be it. Everything else is infinitely separated. If the Bible is not true, it should be. And so that's why we stick to it. You stick to it. I'll find you. Okay, yeah, I'll find you. Father in heaven, we thank you for this time in your word this Sunday morning that we have sung. We have been sung too. We've been reminded. We looked at 1 John, 2 John. We looked at 3 John. We looked at some Hebrews, some Titus, some Corinthians. Uh, we've looked at philosophy versus Christianity, at true Christianity. And Lord, I pray that uh that it would begin in our hearts. You are the God of all the faith. You're the God of the local church. But you're the God of Timothy and Titus and Phoebe and Mary who hath worked hard for you and Priscilla and Aquila and Apollos and uh, Philip and Andrew and Ruth and uh, (laughs) Esther and... David, you're the God of individuals. You're the God of churches and countries and the God of civilizations. You're the God of the great white throne and God of the eternal city. You're the God who makes the entire universe within one little fellow and his wife to begin a race of immortals, mankind. And so we pray for these students and all of us that are surrounded by perversion and pride and arrogance and have sought to take the place of God. Find us, God, in that day, faithful. And we shall ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.